Welcome to our latest episode of our podcast series, It's the People Stupid. Today, we'll be discussing employment law. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by my long-term colleague, uh, Lita Kerwin. Welcome aboard, Lita. Great to have you here today. Thank you very much, Anthony. Lita is a an employment solicitor of many years' experience, and we wanted to talk about the world of employment law today, and particularly the possible changes that may lie ahead. Um, politically, we're aware of the fact that the governments have been talking about the bonfire of the EU regulations post-Brexit, and of course, that could have implications on the legal framework for employers in the UK over the next few years. So we wanted to start just getting a flavour of what might be coming up in the future, as well as talking about some of the things that have been happening in recent years and in and the current state of play regarding employment law. And there's no better expert than Lita to talk about those things. So if we start at the really simple, basic beginnings, Lita, what, as an employer in the UK, if I was about to set up a business and employ, I don't know, 15 people in my business, what are the basic legal requirements that I'm needed to comply with as an employer? Uh, The first important aspect is to ensure you have an up-to-date contract in place, which reflects current legislation. Um, You make sure that from day one now that you issue a contract and it needs to reflect your business. So it's never wise to just to grab one off off the internet uh, or just get your mates from another business down the road and uh, amend or adapt it. It is much better to have uh, a contract that's been drafted, especially for your business, because it will save you a lot of time, money and effort in the long run. So is that to do with the fact that if you're in a dispute with an employee at some point in the future, that's the document you're really going to rely on in a tribunal? It is. Well, it's the document you rely on. The only time that really you'll come to to um, look at a contract or, or come to refer to it is if you do have uh, any issue with an employee um, or indeed they have any issue with you as an employer. So it's, you have to have one by law So or terms and conditions uh, set down. Um, so therefore, it's better to have a bespoke contract rather than um, uh, something you know that you've just snatched. Or indeed, obviously, you can set out the terms and conditions in, in a letter form. But even so, better to have more information than everybody knows where they stand. And that runs nicely into the staff handbook. You know, it is essential to have your policies and procedures uh, down there and bespoke to your business. You know, there's no point uh, you having, um, and say, an engineering works and you using your partner's hairdressing businesses terms and conditions because they just don't match. And mm. you are much better to spend money, time and effort in the first instance, because it can save an awful lot of uh, time and effort later. Um, any employee you know, can refer then to the rules. Um, they don't need to be extensive either. You know, you, you, you will see some contracts which can uh, go on for pages and pages and pages or staff handbooks to, that can be in the hundreds of pages. 
it isn't necessary. And you referenced earlier about contract being required from day one. So that's a, a change that's happened fairly recently, isn't it? That now employees are meant to be issued before joining. So it's there for day one. It is for day one. I mean, not necessarily before, but you've got to make sure that, that they have got their terms and conditions because you used to have four weeks. Um, mm. Now you do actually do need to ensure that they've got it. And there are many businesses in the UK and surely around the world, I would assume, that don't have contracts in place. Um, and it, it, it's, uh, it's a risk because obviously it can then be latched on to any claim before an employment tribunal. An employee could claim for one month's pay uh, if they haven't had a, a contract that's issued. So, right. so or their terms and conditions uh, issued. You know, it doesn't necessarily be, need to be in a contract form, but um, uh, you know, it is necessary to have them. Okay, so that's a, and again, from a from an HR point of view, rather than the strictly legal point of view, to my mind. Um, an employee joining a new business, it demonstrates to them that at least they were expected, at least someone's thought about them, that they know they're coming, that they are welcomed, that they've got all of those things ready. It's just helps that initial onboarding process anyway, if everything's ready for them in advance. Indeed, it does. It does. It, it, it is the, the best business way forward. And what about things that you, you, you also touched on handbook, and this is always one of those areas where uh, we see some fascinating handbooks in our lives, as you know, and some of them may be hundreds of pages long. What are the things that really need to be in there? So legally, from a from an employer's point of view, what do you think should always be in there? And what do you think um, about the sort of overarching legal requirements as an employer, which aren't necessarily specific to employment? I think that, that the main uh, events should be that you, you absolutely need a disciplinary process an up-to-date one and according to ACAS, um, then uh, a grievance procedure. Um, and we used to sort of say, well, that those two uh, plus uh, an equality policy might get you through. But I think it's more these days. I think that really, you, you know, you, you've got to have set out in that staff handbook um, other policies and of how you run your day-to-day -day business because um, it's the it's the, the better thing to do um, and can avoid confusion at a later date. For instance, the drugs and alcohol policy. Um, obviously, you know, a lot of businesses uh, would not want any employee uh, drinking either before work um, or during work um, because obviously they would need them to be concentrating on the job in hand or for health and safety reasons. So it's important to, to have it there and you can refer to it there as many times when you can uh, think, well, um, you know, we need to discuss this, this matter. It's ever so easy to say, can I just refer you to the staff handbook and point them in the right direction of, of a procedure or a policy uh, that sets out uh, your concern. So you'll never be able to have a handbook to cover every eventuality. And we know that from working, you know, we, we've had some very obscure situations arise, as, as we know, working together for so many years. But um, uh, it is it is advisable, really, to, to think about all of the issues in your business or all of the matters in your business that, that could come up and what's important to your business and have them included in your staff handbook. And I think to me, that's a lot to you. You referenced about clarity uh, from an employee's point of view. I think one of the most important things 
anyone can have is a clear understanding of what's expected and what the rules are. So a lot of the, the handbook in some ways is setting out the rules for the business, isn't it? It is, it is indeed. And that brings us nicely on uh, to um, the restraint of trade clauses, which obviously those would be set out generally in the contract of employment. Not always, you know, I have seen them in staff handbooks on, on many occasions. But I think that, that restrictive covenants are uh, important to say there's a bit of our business that, that is could be vulnerable. And for that reason, we would like to contract with you um, a, uh, a you know an incoming person um, to just to say that actually we would need you not to poach our staff when you left and we would need you not to go into direct competition with us and we've been using obviously a six months reasonable clause generally not always uh, to say that you know it would be reasonable to stop you working for say for the direct opposition or the like for six months but we've just been um, obviously reported to us uh, by the press uh, that the government are considering um, and, and it's highly likely to be enforced that there will be just a three-month restrictive covenant which will stop you uh, from um, competing for three months and not six months as, as many contracts are now. Some, of course, are a year currently. Um, but, of course, these clauses are void unless they're reasonable. So mm. you have to prove uh, before a court that the clause that you, the restrictive covenant, um, is reasonable to enforce it. But if the government is saying, because obviously they want um, any any employee to be free to go and work for the competition uh, or to set up their own business, um, so that restriction is only three months. Now, it's not going to um, uh, touch you, the non-poaching clauses we're being informed at this stage. Of course, we never know until these laws are enacted, but... Mm. Um, so that means that that you can still go for a reasonable non-poaching clause, i.e. they can't come and take your uh, their their colleagues, you know, they can't poach their colleagues to go into their new business or their own new venture um, uh, for, say, six months. But again, if I would think that if the government have reduced this to three months or they will do um, the restrictive covenant of, of not working for the competition to three months, you would have to really consider your non-poaching area uh, to, to just to make sure that six months is reasonable, you know. I mean, it's it's interesting. I've literally just finished a call with a client of ours and um, post-termination restrictions. So in simple terms, you know, trying to make sure you protect the business when someone leaves. The, it was a topic that they were asking me about whether they could extend to 12 months. And I referenced the fact that the law was potentially changing. So it's an interesting area because we get often asked about restrictive covenants so how enforceable they are how legally uh, viable they might be and of course they are enforceable and whilst my view on the change potentially to three months is a lot of businesses will be up in arms saying that's far too short it might actually also benefit businesses on the basis that that then becomes a standard restriction that they can enforce because the courts will recognize that it's a three months restriction it's been set out in law and therefore, we now observe that that person cannot go and join that main competitor for that period of time. Whereas at the moment, it's quite a complicated process and you've got to take a high court action and injunct people and all of those things, haven't you? 
You have indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an expensive action. You know, it can cost, uh, uh, you know, lots of money just even to start the claim. And it starts yeah. off in the High Court. You know, it's not a county court um, uh, matter. So, and the court, the costs are commensurate. So, you will need counsel. Um, you need uh, to get ev- all your ducks in a row, and you need to organise your claim from day one. So, it not only does it take a lot of money, it's a lot of time as well time and effort uh, on on the part of the company. But I do agree with you that if there is a three months uh, limit and it is actually there, I think it's highly likely uh, that that would be enforced because we will then know that it's three months. But and of course, the other side of it is that you can then get employees more quickly. So if you want someone to come into your business and they do have a restrictive covenant, um, three months doesn't seem too long. So you, you could possibly or potentially wait for them uh, mm. for three months, you know. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and sim- quickly going back to staff handbooks, because one of the things I always find interesting is where staff handbooks sit in relation to a judge's sort of interpretation of how seriously they take those rules obviously there are things in handbooks that are um, statutes that we're all governed by so discrimination legislation modern slavery anti-bribery all of those things that we all can't get away from um, but how do the courts generally view a handbook I'm, I'm thinking of a an employee an employer who maybe has a handbook and they haven't followed their own, own rules and they end up in a dispute with an employee. What, how do courts tend to view those things? Well, for instance, if you've got a disciplinary procedure and we would always advise that you don't make it contractual because if it is a contractual procedure, which I've seen many that have been contractual and you don't follow them by the, the letter, uh, then you could be in breach of contract, breach of your own contract. But if you've got a disciplinary procedure and it's there in a staff handbook and it specifically says it's non-contractual, it's there for guidance. So say, for instance, that, that you can't absolutely strictly abide by it. However, you are you have followed, you know, sort of guidelines and you have been reasonable, um, then I don't think it would be that derogatory, depending on, on the circumstances, of course, because it's a very fact-led employment law. So... Mm. You know, it, it, there, there, there is that that uh, situation. And then in other aspects, as you've just said, there are there are many um, policies and procedures in staff handbooks that are, are just that, you know, that, that uh, maternity leave, paternity leave, family mm. leave, etc., cetera, um, bereavement leave. It is what it is. And if it is just um, uh, to do with uh, uh, the statutory amount, then it can only be interpreted one way. However, if it's increased on a contractual basis um, and it's actually there in the staff handbook and you have got an increase, um, it is always best to to say that this could be subject to change. You know, it isn't contractual. This could be subject to change. Therefore, if the business got into difficulty or there was a downturn in work, etc., and you can't actually uh, pay uh, you know, sort of enhanced leave or, or, or you know, you've got a better chance of amending it from a staff handbook than ever you have a contract. Yeah, so in simple terms, it's keep the contracts straightforward and don't put too many uh, things that could potentially present risk to the business in the contract. Just make sure it complies with what you need. And the handbooks are more 
flexible vehicle in some ways and you know we've come across businesses before where we've seen that they've given a a really generous benefit that we've realized actually could place the business at risk um and and have gone through a process to ensure that we've we've changed that to not you know make the 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 employees suffer in any way but just to make it more reasonable and make sure that the business is protected and the handbook's an easier place to do that it is indeed and we also what we have seen as well is uh ridiculous uh clauses in the handbook (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but really, if if an employee was was mindful and, and decided to act upon it, or a court uh, or, or an employment tribunal decided it was enforceable, probably could um, finish the business off. You know, to be a receivership. So <laughs> yeah. you, you do you do have to be um, far more careful in a contract. You have to be mindful in a handbook, though, because obviously it's your rules, it's your handbook. And you've written them, uh, and there's an old uh, uh, adage in in any area of law that actually, if you've drafted it, then it's your responsibility, and it's usually interpreted against you. So, uh, the staff handbook needs to do what it says on on the tin. It needs to actually set out uh, what it means, and is this uh, clause contractual or not, uh, or is there leeway? Excellent. So again. Yeah, you you always need to consider and you consider what you've put down in in black and white. And I think uh, yes, you and I have seen some fascinating clauses over um, our years. Moving on, um, one thing that's become more significant in our world in many ways recently has been the role of ACAS, which is the government's advisory conciliation arbitration service. They're far more prominent now in employment um, law and in dispute resolution. So what what has really changed and what part do they play nowadays? I think that the tribunals are entirely full. Um, you know, you wait an awful long time really to, to get a hearing. I, it may have come down a bit, but we both know that probably last year, due to COVID, etc., that the wait could be 18 months really for, for a, a full hearing. Uh, and you're waiting an awful long time for a preliminary hearing. Um, and But the reason why is is that there are many, many claims before the employment tribunals and ACAS uh, or um, uh, other parties do manage to settle 95% of them. So, you know, there is a vast amount of, of, of claims that are settled. Um, my dealing with ACAS is that I've dealt with them for, oh gosh, you know, many, many years, probably at least at least 25 years. Um, and they have grown up an awful lot over the years. And although they they try to be as as good and as kind and they they will listen, I'm finding them to be far more strict now with employees um, than, than than they were. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that if uh, and it, they consider that an employee has uh, a bona fide claim and it's in time, you know, and it, it's within their jurisdiction, uh, that they won't um, assist the employee. But I have come across. Uh, in the last couple of years where claims really um, uh, the employee has tried to claim and it's ACAS have actually said, well, you can't make that claim, you know, because um, you, know, you haven't worked you know, for the company long enough or you haven't done this, that or the other. Um, so you don't qualify for the claim, you know, that the, the employment tribunal for that reason doesn't have jurisdiction. So I found that change there is that in the past, any claim would get through and it was probably um, uh, 
dismissed at the preliminary hearings rather than than ACAS uh, just, you know, advise that they can't uh, claim for that in the first instance. So I, I would imagine it depends on the ACAS officer, although ACAS would entirely deny that. Uh, but, you know, there are, as in every walk of life, there are many different ACAS officers. But having had an awful lot of uh, dealing with ACAS, I think that, um, you know, in, it, certainly most recently, I have actually been told by ACAS, or they tried to claim for, I don't know, say discrimination, but we've told them that we don't think that that, that would succeed or, or we don't, or they've tried to claim for um, unfair dismissal, but they haven't quite got enough time, you know, they haven't got their two years in. Um, and usually it would be down, down to the uh, tribunal to have decided that. So uh, there is a change or it might just be the ACAS officers that we've been dealing with. Okay. And and one of the things that's changed, of course, is that tribunal claims now are made through ACAS. I know it's not a recent change, but it's fairly recent. And from a, from a sort of fairly um, non-expert point of view, you know, my old view is you know, someone has a three-month window to make a claim from their dismissal or from leaving the business. And that was fairly black and white. But the claim going through ACAS seems to have meant they, as long as they get to ACAS within a time, which means an employer might, I guess, see the claim a, a little bit later. Is that true? It is. It's been, I mean, it has been in for some years that you have to go to mediation because you actually need that relevant number. Um, and as soon as ACAS are involved, so someone could, an employee could go right last minute to ACAS. Uh, so just within their three months or so some cases, of course, have a six month limitation period. Um, and they'll go right last minute. So the employer thinks mm, there's no claim coming. And then ACAS will deal with it for a couple of weeks. And then, of course, they um, uh, try to settle it. Hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll contact you, uh, try to mediate it. And then um, if that doesn't happen, as soon as they are issued with a certificate, they do get another month from that time. Mm. Effectively, uh, they can have four months, you know, to, mm. to actually make their claim to mm. tribunal. Yeah, and I think I just, I know it's been in some time. I think it's good to raise because it's sort of, it's interesting that that period of limitations always, it's it's just a subtle change of where you might find out about something after you're expecting it as an employer, I guess, at some point. Indeed, yeah. And one thing that's a, a regular source of conversation between you and I is the fact that employment law uh, over the years has really become a lot more of a playground for um employees if you like or people trying to find ways of of, of of getting money out of former employers and it's an expensive playground now and of course during difficult economic times and you reference the fact that the tribunals are very full um, these sort of claims can really become exaggerated the things that you think that employers really need to look out for or maybe things they can try and do just to minimize their risk against what may be spurious claims I think, you know, always, always try to have an exit interview and try to to make sure, which is more on the HR side than my legal side, but it's always to make sure that you communicate well with your employee and find out exactly where they're at and see if you can address it at that stage. Um, you, you know, all sorts of claims can happen. I think what you find as well is the most prominent claim that I've dealt with really the last few years is those with under two years service will try to uh, claim for discrimination because they don't need two years service. Basically, mm. 
you can be found to have discriminated against someone at the job application stage. You know, they don't even need to be an employee of yours for you to have you know, potentially discriminated against them or for an employee uh, to potentially make a claim. So I think that it is always best if you've got someone under two years service is to make sure that actually if you are uh, deciding that they're unsuitable or maybe even in their probation period, you know, which is that's what the probation period is for. But make absolutely sure that you do everything um, uh, according to, to ACAS recommendations whilst dismissing someone, um, just to make sure that if, if they do have any attribute that, you know, that can be covered by the Equality Act, that it would be difficult for them to claim because you've been fair and you've followed current law and, you know, take advice from us, you know, call us. Um, you know, it may be that... that you know, you're not sure. And, and we will always be honest in the first instance that we will absolutely t- say to you, um, you know, let's listen into your case. And, and if you actually need proper advice or you do need us to help, we'll help. And if we think that actually you'll be fine, um, uh, we would tell you that, you know, it, it is. But it is often better to seek um, advice in the first instance and to take action in the first instance than it is when, when you've got a claim landing you know in a very on a very busy Monday morning and you're thinking how on earth am I going to fit the next month's work in and then you get a claim from tribunal because if you don't respond to it or you respond late then any of your response could be struck out and then it would be you'd be 99% sure that the employee would succeed in their claim if the tribunal has jurisdiction for that claim because you wouldn't then be allowed to put forward your response, which is a defence in, in, in the world of employment law. Yeah, I'm really glad you referenced the, the, the discrimination angle for, for employees with under two years service. So for most, most employees aren't able to present a claim for unfair dismissal at a tribunal if they don't have two years full service with an employer but discrimination can start as you said before they've even been recruited and we one of the things that i've often found really frustrating is the when a claimant has gone to acas to make a claim and it's a blatant lie so you know very well that the they've told acas something that is really hard to substantiate but of course the employer has no choice but to then get involved in trying to prove that that wasn't the case and get ACAS to get them on side it's really quite frustrating oh gosh it is it is and it's it's time consuming costly you know to respond to any claim it does take uh, an awful lot of time and effort and there is no point any business even a small business saying oh I didn't quite understand that or oh, I've had a go, I've, I've tried to respond to it. Oh, I'm sorry it's late, I was so busy uh, because the tribunal is a proper court and it, it won't stand for uh, any any excuse or, or tardiness or even if you are so busy at work that you can't respond in the proper manner. Um, it, it would be a foolhardy thing to uh, to try to to attempt to do it yourself it is an only very straightforward matters really that you should re- be representing yourself in an employment tribunal because it's a court you know judges um are there now it used to be chairman 
whether it be male, female, uh, it, they were always called chairman. And it was quite probably quite laid back, really, when it first started. You know, I mean, I was one of the first employment lawyers proper that I that was around in the 1990s, really. And <laughs> and um, in, in those days, it was very laid back. It was very informal. But it's not now. It is like going into the high court and you do have to get it absolutely right. You know, it isn't even as laid back as the magistrate's court, if you if you indeed, if you could call a magistrate's court laid back. But it, it's you know, you have to get it right. Otherwise, you're on a fool's mission. You know, you just do these things yourselves. So, you know, I wouldn't attempt an engineering project. Best not to attempt a, a legal project. Yeah, I think, and and again, looking at, I, I like the point you said about the exit interview to try and gauge just where someone may be and keep notes of that and keep records. Keeping records is very important all the way through anything like this where you feel there might be a dispute. But uh, again, my feeling has always been if someone brings up um, a possibility of some sort of discrimination, it's absolutely to engage with that discussion. It's not to avoid it. It's to make sure that you try and understand why someone might feel that they've been discriminated against so you can actually uh, you know, at least get to a point of resolution with that because um, yeah, it's always a, a slightly messy situation, but it is a common trend amongst uh, certain employees, employees to try that particular route to, to make a claim. And leading on from that, I think if I was to go and walk into a meeting today and there were 50 business owners in the room, um, I think it would be a fairly consistent feeling amongst everybody in that room that the tribunals are always against them. They always favour the claimants, that everything's stacked against them. What's the, the truth or otherwise or your thoughts on the truth or otherwise of whether that's actually the case? I, I don't think it is the case. I think it can appear to be like that because uh, an employee sometimes is not represented or mm. sometimes they may be represented by someone from the f uh, free representation unit or, or CAB or the like um, or a local um, uh, employment law centre. Uh, and I think that uh, a judge is there really to understand the case because a judge has to match the facts to the law and then make their mind up but of course you know there are two wing members generally not always these days but generally in an employment tribunal one of the wing members representing employers one representing employees um, uh, and sometimes it could appear that that an employee uh, is being favoured however saying that um, you have to be very careful with the likes of, of pay um, it is never wise to deduct any payment from an employee unless you've got it in writing that you're entitled to, to deduct that and it's in accordance with current legislation um, or um, uh, not uh, allocate you know, a sufficient holiday, etc. because that's working time regs. Um, and cases like that, uh, they'll take short shrift really, uh, mm. an employment judge will. So it is better um, to go very, very well prepared and then it won't appear to you as if that they're pointing fingers at the employer or, or taking a stand against the employer. I mean, I've known either side and, and back, you know, sort of in the day, I've represented an awful lot of employees as well as employers. So, uh, and I've, I've had it on both sides where I've thought, oh gosh, you know, that case is 
going to be, we're absolutely certainly going to win. And we've lost because, um, you know, the judge didn't really like the, the evidence on the day, preferred someone else's evidence. And it can seem like that they're uh, against you, but it generally isn't. However, you are the employer. Uh, it is in accordance to you. So whatever, all the rules and regs in your business are your rules and regs. So that's why it is very important to um, uh, get them right and to have fair rules and regulation in accordance with the current law, you know, and, and because, they, you know, they will not uh, allow you really to deviate from the law because they can't. That's what they're for. Mm. It's interesting. I think um, my personal view in some ways is that certainly as a smaller business, uh, a lot of business owners would feel it's very onerous because of that preparation. It's not necessarily that the the system, uh, oh, sorry, not necessarily that the tribunal's against them, but it maybe feel like the system is that the employee or ex-employee can file a claim, it's in, and then, of course, you said you've got to be prepared, and that's your responsibility, and that's the bit that often takes the time, and I think that's why people often feel it's stacked against them. But, of course, as you said, that's your requirement as a business. You know, you have rules, regulations, structures, procedures, so it's one of those things. If you don't prepare for it and don't prepare well, you may well get the wrong result. Whereas if you are in the right and you've done, you've acted reasonably all the way through and then you prepare by doing the legwork to you know, represent properly at the tribunal, then the tribunal is simply there to interpret and understand what happened and apply the law. Absolutely, indeed. And and that is the, the right approach. Uh, and you have to, uh, if you prepare yourself well, and you make sure that, that you do understand what's going on and you're not there to be an expert on employment law. You know, you couldn't be. It takes so many years to actually mm. understand the nuances, the, the legal element of it, the HR element. Um, leave it to somebody else, you know, mm. leave somebody who knows what they're doing and concentrate on what you're doing best, you know, which is mm. running your business. Um, and it, it can be extremely annoying if you do get a claim out of the blue. But most of our clients who we've advised over the years uh, don't receive claims out of the blue because we do the work properly leading up to, uh, and, you know, if it's any dispute, we will generally address it way before it gets anywhere near a tribunal mm. because that's the art form of, of implementing the law correctly and implementing HR in tandem with employment law mm. uh, and it's a difficult thing to achieve. Yeah absolutely. Um, I, I mentioned at the start and at the introduction that one of the things we I'm really interested in is what may be coming down the track in the future, we've already touched on the fact that there's changes down the track in legislation regarding post-termination restrictions. The, a big thing was made of Brexit, and I don't want to get political, even though it's my inclination to do so, but you know, the bonfire of the regulations was a very big headline for the government and uh, the, the Brexit vote. Um, what are your thoughts on what may be coming down the line for employers regarding any changes in employment law? Well, of course, you know, I, you know, not not wanting to be political either, but uh, everything was meant to have, uh, you know, the bonfire of, of the alleged vanities was meant to be happening at the end of the year. Um, and of course, they could not do that because, you know, every single aspect of, of many areas that, that 
have been legislated for uh, include European uh, law. Um, but um, there are a few things that, that will be implemented and, and the restrictive covenants has got nothing to do with this. You know, it's a, 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 a separate uh, entity. But the one I'm interested in really is rolled up holiday pay because I've worked with many businesses over the years that have used rolled up holiday pay, meaning that, you know, if you've got casual employees or, or say term time employees, that you pay them really um, on the hours that they do and in many sort of care agencies you know etc or, or agencies in general they'll be paid each month their holiday pay so they don't actually book holiday you know it's, it's rolled up they, they get paid for the hours that they do holiday pay to work out on top um, the EU last few years definitely said no you know it was definitely you can't do that um, employees have to take holidays or workers have to take holidays the Court of Appeals said mm, they agreed sort of with, with the uh, EU, but said, actually, you can offset it against the holiday pay. So effectively, they were saying that, you know, you can uh, actually uh, implement rolled up holiday pay. But I think that it will be dispensed with, you know, and that's definitely a European led uh, bit of legislation that, that will be dispensed with. Um and then coming on to TUPI, which is my favourite things, which is the transfer of undertakings, which means that if you've got an employee uh, and they're contracted with you, if, if uh, the part of the business that they work for is transferred on. So, you know, say cleaning companies usually that cleaners, um, you lose your contract and your cleaners are on that contract that actually the incoming contractor must take your cleaners because they'll be cheapied across. So in general contract law, that couldn't happen. But the transfer of undertakings uh, legislation means that it can. Now, everybody uh, was thinking, oh, cheapy is going to absolutely be changed, you know, because it is it is quite a European piece of law and it, it, it's developed in Europe. But it isn't the case. It, um, basically, all the only change really I can see that's going to happen in Tupi is that uh, for those with less than 50 employees, you don't need a designated representative to assist in Tupi discussions and consultations. So it's not a big thing, you know. Tupi does need sorting out, but I don't think that they've got the ability or, or the uh, numbers to sort it out at this stage. So. They're quite basic, really, the, the few changes that, that will be uh, coming in. Um, uh, and, and we don't really know uh, when they'll, they'll happen. You know, possibly this year, the, uh, uh, the rolled up holiday pay. Uh, and there's another thing on the holiday front is, is that it used to be uh, the four weeks was the European led holiday and the 1.6 is our local uh, so it's additional holiday leave. They're going to change it that 5.6 weeks is is um, a holiday leave, basically. So, you know, it does sort of have a, a slight impact on um, uh, employers. But all these great, you know, changes, this big bonfire of European led laws is just not coming in. So so there is there is not much really to write home about for this yeah. year. Yeah, I think I think over the last couple of years, whilst we've been going through post-Brexit, employment legislations generally remained 
left alone. It's not been one of those areas that they've really picked on. Uh, and it sounds from your summary and from mine, I've I've read a lot and I don't see any major indications of significant changes coming down the line. And you know, things like rolled up holiday pay. Well, yeah, we the working time regulations were brought in to make sure people had holidays, and it's important. And certainly in a world where you know, post COVID. Uh, well-being and employee welfare has become a far more significant part of the agenda for most businesses. Uh, it's really going against the grain if the changes really just say, actually, if you're an agency worker, you can just work relentlessly forever as long as you get enrolled up holiday pay, which is is very much against the grain, but consistent, I guess, with that sort of uh, uh, greyish economy that we've got that uh, provides lots of agency workers to fill in the gaps. Indeed, no, absolutely, I agree with you. And and you know, so so all these big changes we were promised won't be coming in. There's one last one really I'd like to talk about is maternity. Uh, those maternity leavers. I mean, at the moment we all know that if anyone is on maternity leave or adoption leave or shared parental leave, if they actually come back to work. Um, for the time that they're off and if they as soon as they come back to work they should be returning either to their own job or depending on the amount of leave that they had or something very uh, similar and if a job is being made redundant and they get first dibs even if they're not the best candidate for the job if their job is being uh, made redundant and they're on on such leave that that should be uh, their prerogative to have first dibs of that job um so what's being uh, discussed at the moment and what what's on, on the cards really is that this will be uh, extended from when they inform an employer that they're going on to maternity leave or adoption leave or, or shared parental leave for, and for 18 months afterwards. So that is a big shift, you know, because okay. they, um, uh, that and, and, it, and it's quite a, you know, a, a something to think about and, and just be very careful because obviously we're only all getting here on this planet one way at the minute is is that us women are going to have babies so <laughs> therefore mm. um uh, you know for for that reason um don't discriminate because it is a legal hot potato in employment law and if you get that bit wrong then mm. it could be a very costly mistake yeah yeah no i uh, uh, that change sounds quite a positive one as well in in many ways from from my point of view because it is such a a vitally important area and as you say that's 50 percent of the population yeah almost 50 percent of the workforce and therefore it's uh, you, you, well, in, indeed but i mean those on adoption leave as well so it's not necessarily always women mm. uh, will share parental leave will also have that protection so so yeah. it's a good thing you know yeah, a, you know uh, we we don't we do actually need to procreate because people do actually need to get here somehow. So, And it's not all about work. <laughs> mm, yeah, absolutely. Lisa, thank you for that. One of the final things I wanted to ask is you know, where would you advise a good places for employers to try and keep up to date with changes? I absolutely echo and obviously will echo the fact that it's always sensible for anyone to go and seek expert advice. As you said, I wouldn't dream of starting an engineering project either, but um you know, find good experts to help you. But where are good places for employers to keep an eye on any changes and what may be coming down the line? I think um, ACAS is is a good point because 
ACAS is, is what an employment judge would use and, and we would always refer to that because employment law uh, is legal and it is in our system and it is an adversarial system so we do have to abide by that so ACAS uh, is, is there it's not always clear on ACAS website what it actually means um, sometimes you know and even ACAS website will say you should seek uh, specialist legal advice and in certain circumstances you certainly should be very wary of gov.co because there have been many times in the past that it's just not quite right on there and that's a privately owned enterprise anyway gov.co you know mm. well, that's meant to reflect um, uh, what is happening you know in all aspects of, of law and the government um, you do need to be quite careful of that uh, website. Uh, it may have information for you. Uh, also, I don't think all of it is is that well written. You know, it, it, it can be very confusing. Um, you can always phone ACAS, you know, they will always uh, give you some time, um, that, you know, and advise you. So if, you, if you've got something really that, that's happening at work uh, and you're not sure, then, then go onto that website. Uh, otherwise, I mean, obviously for me, from a lawyer's point of view, I would go on to case law, but I think um, might be a bit difficult if you don't really understand uh, the, the legal elements. What What do you think? What do you think other resources are for? Well, I'm similar to you. I think I uh, I tend to re- try and read quite widely in news feeds. Some of the personnel magazines are very good as well because, of course, they're going to be telling people what's coming down the line and also how to under- understand and implement it from a personnel point of view. I totally accept and know that they don't always interpret it perfectly from a legal point of view or there might be some sometimes a bit of ambiguity there but they're good in terms of flagging some of the main things that are coming down the line so sort of personnel management and personnel today those sort of sites are very good um and you know some of the better news sites they just tend generally have reasonable feeds in terms of what is going on uh, and otherwise yes acas acas provides regular updates regular news feeds they regularly offer services as well to provide training in certain areas for employees as well so it is quite a a good source of information but um yeah but seek an expert to really understand it because unfortunately it is a very expensive area to make mistakes in now so um yeah always seek good advice uh, as and when you need it Lita, I've absolutely loved spending some time with you this afternoon. So thank you very much indeed for being our guest. And um, yeah, we'll look forward to catching him again very, very soon. Thank you, Anthony.